DW Africa Link. It is 4 p.m. in North Kivu province in the Democratic Republic of Congo and exactly 5 p.m. here in Bonn, Germany. This is DW South Africa Link Show and my name is Josie Mahachi. And Josie Mahachi is with me, George Okachi. We are also live on our Facebook page. DW Africa and also through our partner stations across the continent. Coming up on the show, fresh fighting erupt in Democratic Republic of Congo's Masisi area, shattering hope for truce. The M23 attacked from two positions, a few kilometers from Kichanga area in the villages of Kisimba and Burungu. Also on the show, we will tell you why cholera continues to threaten many African countries. I do not believe that African countries have understood and have taken the measures as seriously as it should. It's one of those illnesses that it's quite unfortunate to lose anybody to cholera, yet you can lose somebody within hours. So stay tuned for these stories and more, and details much more later. But first, Keith Walker, tell us what's news in the Global Cycles. DW News. Hello, I'm Keith Walker. German Defence Minister Boris Pistorius says the government has yet to reach a decision on supplying battle tanks to Ukraine. But at a press conference with NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg in Berlin, Pistorius said allies could start training Ukrainian forces on using their own stocks of Leopard tanks. Hundreds of thousands of jobs are expected to be created in Nigeria. The West African nation has opened a billion-dollar deep-sea port in Lagos. It will also ease congestion at other Nigerian ports and help the country become an African hub for cargoes being shipped to other destinations. The port is a joint venture between investors from China and Singapore, as well as the Nigerian and Lagos governments. China is among the largest bilateral lenders to Nigeria and has funded rail, roads and power stations. China's ambassador to Nigeria was at the port's opening. This project could create at least 200,000 jobs. That just means income. And I do believe the local workers could get decent income. The second is very important for GDP. Africa Link News comes to you from Germany's international broadcaster, DW. Lawmakers from the Council of Europe are meeting this week in the French city of Strasbourg. German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock addressed the organization's member states on the legal and human rights aspects of the war in Ukraine. The Council of Europe is a body of 46 European countries and it's separate from the European Union. Here's the Foreign Minister talking about Europe's response to Russia's aggression and the threat to peace in Europe. President Putin wants to drag Europe back in a past dominated by power politics where states can trample on individual rights in the pursuit of imperial glory where rulers dispose of their citizens like pawns in geopolitical chess games. That is why in the face of Russia's war, neutrality was not an option. We had to make a choice between injustice and justice, freedom and oppression, between standing on the side of the aggressor and standing on the side of the victims. Protesters took to the streets in Yemen, Iraq and Jordan after a Danish politician burnt a copy of the Koran in Sweden. In Baghdad, people gathered outside the Swedish embassy to voice their anger. The far-right politician burnt Islam's holy book after criticizing Islam and immigration in Sweden. 
And finally, Cameroon's government says it has not asked any country to mediate in its conflict with Anglophone separatists. That's despite Canada saying it had received a request to work on a peace process. Canada's foreign ministry had claimed it had accepted a mandate to facilitate talks between Cameroonian authorities and some separatist factions. Cameroon is embattled in an ongoing civil war between pro-Anglophone and pro-Francophone factions in the country. Both groups are fighting to capture the country's English-speaking northwest and southwest regions. And there's more on this Anglophone crisis coming up shortly here on Africa Link. And that's the latest. I'm Keith Walker. Africa Link, every weekday here on DW. Keith Walker, many thanks for that. And remember, you're listening to DW's Africa Link program coming to you live from our studios in Bonn, Germany. My name is George Okachi. And I'm Josie Mahachi. We really love to hear from you. So your platform is DW Africa on our Facebook page. We also appreciate everyone who's tuned in through our partner stations across Africa. Another breaking news just coming in now. Former education uh, minister in Kenya, George Mahoa, has died. He passed away at Nairobi Hospital just a few hours ago. Yes, we're keeping tabs to that and of course we shall be updating you accordingly. Now, to uh, what we lined up for the show, Josie, fresh fighting has erupted in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo despite a truce agreement between the government and rebel groups. Heavy clashes have been reported in Masisi territory in North Kivu province. Residents say the M23 rebel group is behind the fresh flare-ups. Our correspondent Zanem Neti Zahidi has the latest on this story. The M23 rebels reportedly bypassed several DRC armed forces positions to launch their attacks on two fronts four kilometers from Kichanga, a village in Masisi territory. Jerome Kayenga is a local resident who fled his village during the clashes. The M23 attacked from two positions a few kilometers from Kichanga area in the villages of Kisimba and Burungu. They wanted to directly cut the road to Goma, and that is why we fled in disarray without knowing exactly where we're going. Several hundred inhabitants left Kichanga as soon as the fighting broke out. Placid Banyene took refuge directly in Mweso, a neighboring village with his entire family. We had the sounds of many weapons early in the morning in the vicinity of Kishanga and panic set in among the population. Some have fled in the direction of Mweso, Uchalichi and elsewhere, but many have also stayed in Kishanga. The Masisi self-defense groups have been concentrating since the morning in the city of Kichanga and Heritienda Gindange, spokesman for a militia in the region, reassures us that they will defend their territory until the supreme sacrifice. We are staying here. We are going to fight until we drive out the enemy of the DRC. I don't know if the M23 will be able to get to Masisi because our general has just gone to Kichanga and we are going to set up there to see where the M23 will go. The new clashes come as the M23 says it is pursuing its plan to withdraw from the areas it occupies 
as stipulated in the Luanda Accords, a process that the Congolese army has called a charade. The army, however, reassures the population that the situation will be brought under control very quickly. Zanem Neti reporting from the heart of the conflict that is in the North Kivu province. And of course, streams of comments coming in, Josie. Yes, uh uh, Yolande Makoko said this is literally no problem in Congo that DRC, their president doesn't blame on Rwanda. What will promote economic development is for DRC to stop its support for its over 130 illegal armed groups including the genocidal militia FDLR. Of course, that is the government spokesperson for Rwanda. And UNHCR in Rwanda says over 3,000 new arrivals from DRC have fled into Rwanda in the past three weeks, and it is setting up a new camp. And Nero says, honestly, that country called Congo is blessed beyond human imagination. The amount of mineral resources there is enough to turn that place into a mini heaven. But like we always see anywhere around the world, the people become poorer in the midst of abundant natural resources. Of course, keep your comments coming for this particular story. It's a fluid situation and we are keeping tabs on it. Now, moving ahead, Kenya is on high alert following reports of a new cholera case, rather new cholera cases in almost 14 countries counties. About 72 people have been reported dead from the disease. And generally, Josie, there has been an increase in cholera cases in most sub-Saharan African countries. I have just spoken to Kenyan-based health expert Dr. Victor Ngani and started by asking him if he is worried by the simultaneous progression of cholera outbreaks in most African countries. Uh, yes, indeed. It's a worrisome trend, not just uh, in African countries, but also we've had the spread of cholera beyond uh, Africa. I think during the COVID season, when there was heightened hygiene, we saw a drop and a, a reduction in the number of uh, cases being reported. But as soon as we went back to our normal uh, habits that are uh, devoid of uh, routine and hygiene and certain sanitary measures, then we've seen a spike. And I'm saying this because uh, the WHO has actually recommended that we consider this as a continuing pandemic. What that means is that we are likely to see um, many infections happening across many countries, and Africa is particularly at risk. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned Kenya where you practice, uh, Daktari, and 14 counties have so far been affected. How bad is the situation? Um, it's pretty bad. It's an underreported illness. And you see, one of the biggest challenges with cholera is that it's almost entirely preventable. And then if it's diagnosed early, then you can treat it. But then if it's not treated, mortality can be pretty high. You're talking in excess of 20% if someone has severe symptoms and it is not uh, addressed urgently. It's important to remember that only 10% of people who have cholera do exhibit these severe symptoms. So whenever you see 10 people who are very sick, you know, there is another 90 in the background who uh, got the disease but are not able to, uh, are not um, uh, visibly sick. Then in Kenya, we still suffer from underreporting. We should be uh, reporting every single case, but that has not been the case uh, across the country. So the situation isn't present at all. And Kenya, like many other African countries, has had several interventions to deal with cholera. Are these interventions really working, Daktari? To some degree, these interventions require compliance. So whenever there's no compliance, the interventions will not, will not work. Uh, so what are we talking about? Um, safe drinking water, which is uh, you know, water that is free of contaminants, is probably one of the fastest routes to which cholera spreads. 
And unless we provide that access to safety drinking water or water for domestic use, we will not be controlling the cholera. If we do not uh, adhere to this and we don't actually make sure these measures, uh, you know, this compliance, then the impact of these measures will not be seen. Well, and in light of that, uh, Daktari, do you believe Africa will achieve uh, the ambitious target of eradicating cholera completely by 2030? And unfortunately, I, I don't want to be the prophet of doom, but uh, 2030 is quite ambitious because there are three things that we must put in place that uh, enable us to achieve this. Number one, we must uplift the standards of living for many people, uh, especially in the poor zones. The second thing we have to do is in, increase awareness, ensure everyone is aware of cholera, what needs to be done to eradicate that. And for us to get rid of cholera by 2030, it means this information campaign will already be held scheduled. It takes years to set a culture that deals with cholera, and then uh, other options like vaccines and so on become material. So I'm quite uh, skeptical, simply because I know how much we are struggling with providing access to even clean drinking water alone, providing sanitation, um, toilet blocks. It's a difficult call, it's an ambitious goal, but I think 2030 is quite optimistic. Well, to accelerate the conversation around cholera and take it seriously, I do not believe that African countries have understood and have taken the measures as seriously as it should. It's one of those illnesses I've said that it's quite unfortunate to lose anybody to cholera, yet you can lose somebody within hours, someone who's perfectly fine and productive in society. Now, yeah, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> that was Vic Tangani, clinical doctor, expert on health-related matters there, having a chat on cholera with our own George Okachi. And of course, uh, pointing out on a very, you know, important issue that cholera is preventable. It's, it only calls for, you know, uh, adhering to these preventative measures, Josie. Mm-hmm. And another story we're covering uh, is from Uganda after a year of the death of Ugandan Central Bank. President Museveni is yet to name his successor. Yes, so. Emmanuel Tumusime Mutebile died at hospital in neighboring Kenya on January 23rd. He had headed the public institution since 2001, and we had a lot of comments on that particular story. Protifa Tembo says, yes, he should find him a successor. Um, uh, Musa, I'm, I'm trying to save some comments because uh, some yeah, of them some are, are not really... Some are not readable, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Nelly Jacqueline says, just know that Museveni himself is the bank governor, governor, minister of finance, minister of internal affairs and others. And Eagle I Ben BBSK, you're saying that's not surprising in Uganda. All is possible. Mm-hmm. And Musa Jian says he should be preparing one of his grandchildren, I guess, because such positions belong rather to his family and relatives. Thank you so much for those comments. Remember to keep them civil and keep commenting on our Facebook page, DW Africa. Remember, this is Africa Link. Thanks for sticking around. And in case you're just joining us, welcome to DW's Africa Link program coming to you from Bonn, Germany. My name is Josie Mahachi. And Mahachi is with me, Okachi George. You can connect with us uh, through our partner stations around the world, but also via our Facebook page. Remember, the Facebook page name is DW Africa. Now, coming up in the next few minutes, Nigeria President Muhammadu Buhari insists deadline for the exchange of old Naira notes for the new one cannot be shifted. Time has been given from October to December, three months. It's enough. So I don't know why people are complaining about it. There's no going back. There's no going back. 
<laughs> this is a major one, Josie, and of course, uh, mm-hmm. stay tuned for that. But for now, we head to Cameroon, where over 700 Nigerian refugees have been repatriated from Minawao refugee camp to Nigeria. Their voluntary return was overseen by the UNHCR and the governments of Cameroon and Nigeria. However, George, the camp is still home to some 75,000 Nigerian refugees. Among them is Ali Shuk, father of eight, who was one of the first to settle in the camp in 2013 when Boko Haram insurgents struck his native Gwaza in Bono State. Kilian Gala reports more on this. Erosta Crows and the Minawao refugee camp comes alive. Some 750 out of the 75,000 Nigerian refugees here are heading home back to Nigeria on a voluntary basis. It's the first batch of repatriation for the year 2023. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees says it plans to repatriate some 5,000 refugees by the end of the year. The head of the UNACR sub-office in Marwa, Kimbele Robeson, says care has been taken to enable the returnees rebuild their broken lives. We've always tried to give them skills in terms of education, both children's education and adult education, as well as basic life skills, new agricultural skills, tailoring, also how to make ecological briquettes so they don't have to use firewood, anything that we can do that are basic life skills. Ali Shwek and his family aren't amongst those returning. The security situation in his native Gwaza in Bono State, Nigeria, is getting worse. Ali was the personal assistant to the former speaker of the Nigerian National Assembly, but in 2013, Boko Haram swept through Gwaza along with his two wives and eight children. Ali was forced to flee. I don't want to talk about that because our houses are destroyed, our properties are taken away. And uh, we can't even count how many lives we have buried and how many lives we have left in the bush without burying them. June 2013 is a horrible day for me. DHKM, they drive us, they kill my brother, destroy, took all our properties. We have to flee to Zelevit, where we are trusted for 20 days before UN Hester come to our heads. So this moment, I don't want to talk about it because really it is painful. He has been in this camp since 2013 when the camp was set up. It's a hard life his family is leading here, having to cope with hunger, thirst and limited access to education. Despite the hardship, Ali has refused to walk down the road of despair, frequently playing a leading role to improve life in the camp. Right from day one, I happen to be one of the elders in the camp, putting people together. We form a committee to uh, engage ourselves in so many activities, such as peacekeeping, before the Heron Hester will come and give assistance. Ali isn't oblivious of the unfolding political atmosphere in Nigeria with presidential elections just around the corner. He has no preferred candidate, but hopes whoever wins makes security a top priority. No security personnel has ever entered Goza Mountain to oversee the security challenge in that area. So I pray that the Nigerian government should send troops to those areas so that they can wipe out those uh, hoodlums. What's up, uh, Never die! Never die! Continued reports of attacks, kidnappings and killings in Nigeria could mean that Alishwek 
like thousands of other Nigerian refugees in Cameroon, may have to stay in the camp for a little bit longer. Thanks, Kilian Gala, for that report. Now, moving on, the Nigerian Senate has today urged the Central Bank of Nigeria, that is the CBN, to extend the mop-up of old Naira notes to 31st of July 2023. However, the Central Bank of Nigeria Governor Godwin Emefiele has said that the Apex Bank will not extend the deadline for the old version of the redesigned higher denominations of the Naira notes to seize to function as legal tenders. Now, according to the central bank, about 1.5 trillion naira had been recovered from circulation as of last week. He expects that before January 31st date, up to 2 trillion naira would have been collected from circulation. Shehu Salmani brings us more on the story. This is not a marketplace, but a bank where people are keen to get their old cash deposited in Nigerian banks. Nigerians are forfeiting their part of the money, business and time to meet off with the deadline as the old note ceased to be the legal tender in the next seven days. People spend days and sleepless nights trying to lodge their money. Anna Peter says that the scenario is not nice to them. Give me a place of work to come and spend hours in the bank. Some people stay, stay from money till evening without going to face their businesses and all that. All Nero notes sit very much in people's hand and the new notes, so it's not, it's, it's, not, it's not something nice. Getting new notes or depositing the old notes to the common citizens has become a mirage. If I'm Obera that was met in the banking hall stranded doubted the possibility of meeting up the deadline, says they have since started counting the loss. I don't think it's possible because even the rate of individuals coming into the bank says is very massive. You have people coming to deposit in some of 500,000, some even 50. The promise is 10,000. They have to stand in the same queue. So people are depositing the sum of 200 million, 20 million, 10 million. So it's not encouraging at all. Please key in your personal identification number. As the new notes remain scarce across the banks and in circulation, as the old notes are no longer accepted in the market, this gradually crippling commercial activities, especially small businesses, according to this businesswoman. My name is uh, Mrs. Nora Sam Emeokwe. Customers are no longer coming because they don't have new money. And they said by 31st of this month, everything will be clear. So the bank doesn't have the new ones. So how can we do it? People are coming with old ones. And if you refuse to collect, which means the, the business will no longer move. But the thing that is affecting us seriously, let them give more time for people to, to settle down and get so that the bank will work to, in order to make the new ones circulate. The Nigerian authorities reiterated that there will be no extension to the 31st January deadline. Nigerians have had enough time, says the president earlier in an interview. Uh, this change of, of currency, I think uh, there will be a lot of money. But time has been given from October to December, three months. It's enough, whatever money you have, to get it changed through a legal system. So I don't know why people are complaining about it. There's no going back. There's no going back. 
some bank managers in a bustling city of Sokoto, northwestern Nigeria, confessed that they are yet to get supplied with the new notes from the Apex Bank. Shehu Salmanu with that particular story that has elicited a massive debate on our social media platform. And I begin with Oyom Prosper. You're saying, as of yesterday, the ATM machine dispensed old Naira to me after receiving a message from Central Bank of Nigeria to return <laughs> the old Naira. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing, but this is funny. They're giving a deadline of 31st and they're still dispensing old Naira. Yeah, the ATM is dispensing old Naira. And Dare Olotukin says, what exactly is wrong with this country? Who did we offend? Why is it that our leaders are this heartless? God, I beg, oh, please deliver us by all means, Central Bank of Nigeria. God, I beg, oh... <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for those comments. Remember, you can also share what you think about these stories on our Facebook page, DW Africa. Now, moving ahead to some showbiz. Mm -hmm. George, you know, every West African country has at least one variation of jollof rice, mm -hmm. and it both divides and unites the region with this seductive aroma, deep red color, and spicy flavor. Jollof rice is the undisputed queen of West African kitchens. Yes, and uh, just whisper the word jollof in West Africa, and you could easily start a very feud of passion, Josie. That's because determining which West African nation makes jollof best is an ongoing matter of local pride and contention. Now, George, the great jollof wars have certainly intensified with the latest claim that Senegal is the official home of the adored West African dish. A recent study by UNESCO indicates that the dish developed in Senegal during the period of colonial entrenchment roughly between 1860 and 1940. I wish you could say that again. But we decided to hear what some Ghanaians and Nigerians think about this. Jollof pastry doesn't really matter where it comes from. It depends on how it's being prepared. The most important thing is that if you, the person does it very well, it doesn't matter whether it comes from Ghana, Nigeria, Senegal. All that matters is that it's being prepared because Charlie, when you're eating jollof, you should know that yes, I'm eating something. I am Isaac Kaleji from Accra, Ghana. Well, for many Ghanaians, I'm sure that the origin of uh, jollof really is, is not a big deal for, for us Ghanaians. I think the argument has been who has the best jollof, who prepares the best of jollof, or whose jollof tastes the best. And a lot of people attest to the fact that, yeah, of course, the jollof from Ghana has a different taste, a, a kind of taste that you always come back for. Hello, my name is Victoria Opara. I'm from Nigeria. Ah, Nigeria jollof rice, you can't beat it. It's the best. It's better than any other country, be it Ghana. And I think I suggest there should be a competition to show for this, okay? And you can see who has the best jollof rice. You know, for me, the debate has never been about the origins of jollof rice. Hi guys, my name is Michael Uti. I want to weigh in on the Jollof War. Yes, so UNESCO has said Senegal is the origin of Jollof rice. First off, UNESCO does not eat Jollof rice. So, how can they have a say on Jollof rice? But more importantly, the debate between Ghana and Nigeria is about who has the best 
jollof rice. And obviously, it's Ghana. Ghana has the best jollof rice. So yes, Senegal can talk about origins, but that's not really what we are talking about in West Africa. Okay, so my name is Zainab Khalil. There's no jollof rice like Nigerian jollof rice. In fact, it doesn't have part two. I am sure they have not really tasted Nigerian jollof rice. Maybe somebody gave them a different jollof rice. We will never carry last when it comes to jollof rice or when it comes to anything. Nigeria will always be number one. That is the beauty about Nigeria now. We know they carry last. My name is Hadiza Abdurrahman. Um, I would say I have been opportune to be in Dakar, Senegal. I still prefer Nigerian jollof rice because um, I have tasted theirs and I continue to eat that of Nigeria. So Nigeria's jollof rice is more tastier than theirs. From- Okay, so it's just clear the war continues. But, it really continues. But yeah. <laughs> I should emphasize with, uh, from our very own Omar Wali, who mm. is in the Gambia, he says the name Jalof is from Senegambia, that is the Gambia and Senegal, certain mm. to prepare the best Jalof. We call it Bananchin in Senegambia region. Okay, so he's now adding Gambia to, to this also. <laughs> Bring the originality in the spice, you know. <laughs> and Hassan, you say Senegambia is the original jollof rice recipe and it remained patented. Nigerians and Ghanaians are fighting over who has the best clone, clone <laughs> I repeat, of jollof rice. <laughs> Josie, what is your verdict? Okay, so I've tasted Ghana, I've tasted Nigeria. Yeah. I'm sorry to say, but I still prefer Ghana jollof rice. Okay, on that note, we just have to wind it. This is an endless debate. My name is Jojo Kachi. Let's do this again tomorrow. And my name is Josie Mahachi. Try and have some jollof rice for dinner tonight. Catch you tomorrow. Made for mine.